It's the Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Maybe you were there on Thanksgiving Day 2002 when, somewhere between the turkey and the pumpkin pie, Stein Online slyly went live with its first postings. Even on a very family-focused, housebound holiday, word slipped out and within hours, thousands upon thousands were clicking on our first offerings. 20 years later, we are still here. And a lot of people aren't from those early days of the internet, here with an audio collage of the last two decades with some starry names from Megan Kelly to Jordan Peterson along the way. But to kick things off, of those initial offerings at Stein Online, here's the one that, of all things, has lasted. If you heard our special 20 years ago show, you'll know that in Stein Online's first week, the Miss World competition went to Nigeria and prompted a Muslim riot in which hundreds of people died. For my Telegraph column, a couple of days later, I sloughed off some throwaway parody lyrics that, with the help of my burqa-clad child bride, have stayed with me to this day on stages around the world and have been heard by tens of thousands of people. So if you will please welcome my second wife. <laughs> oh, uh, my apologies, this is actually wife number three. The, the gals like to get a little crazy and switch burkas on me, you know how that goes. Hit it! I like to get a little romantic here at the Kodak Center. This one goes out to all the lovers here tonight. A, uh, a bouquet of love to the flower city. Smooch along with this one, Rochester. My Sharia Amor, she's hard enough for golf and mills. Yeah, my Sharia but I'm the cat she really fears. My Sharia Amor, I got her from an M.M. in Lahore. One of only four wives I beat for. How I wish that I had five. Dig that bird. This chick will take a That's one of the rare moments over the last two decades when my two principal interests, the music and the politics, came together. We didn't do a lot of audio and video at Stein Online back then because the internet was still primarily a text medium. And I didn't do a lot of radio or TV, except occasionally when I'd be invited on an arts show or a music show or some such. But 20 years ago, things were changing. My theatrical life was shrinking, mainly because of the dearth of production. Here I am on PBS with Michael Riedel. A lot of our 
top directors now in the musical theater, uh, have not had very much experience working with new musicals. I mean, new musicals mm. take forever to get on, mm. and there are very few of them coming along. I think it's terribly sad, this. There is no reason in the world why a musical should take 10 years uh, to get on. All that means is that uh, by the time, uh, if you were George Gershwin, by the time you get your first show on, you'd be dead. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> true. It's, never, it's never going to work. You're never going to have a viable theater like that. In a sense, uh, the Disney way uh, is the quickest way. If you're someone like Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Godspell, or, or Tim mm -hmm. Rice and Elton John, it's actually quicker to go to Disney, get them to make a cartoon movie <laughs> of the thing, <laughs> and then adapt it for the stage a couple of years later. Yeah, you'll I be mean, in town in three years. That's right. <laughs> and that is so. Uh, using the motion picture business as a tr as the new tryout is actually far more efficient. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to be a man about Broadway when Broadway's dead, so I started accepting very sparingly the occasional invite from non-artsy, non-musical shows. Only the best, of course, such as the great Brian Lamb, founder of C-SPAN. Top of the hour, and on a website uh, that says it's uh, <clears throat> Stein Online, <clears throat> they say uh, he divides his time between Quebec New Hampshire and London, and we found him in Burlington, Vermont. Mr. Stein, how did you get to Burlington, and where are you on your way to? Uh, well, Burlington, uh, Vermont is kind of uh, midway between Quebec and New Hampshire, uh, so it's it's kind of my daily, not daily commute, but it's, uh, it's the nearest I have to a commute. Uh, I'm uh, on route between the two. It also says on your Stein Online website that uh, you can find you in the Daily Telegraph of Britain, the Sunday Telegraph, the Spectator, the Chicago Sun-Times, the New York Sun, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the New Criterion, the Atlantic Monthly, the National Review, the Western Standard, the Jerusalem Post, the Irish Times. Do you write different things for all of those publications every week? Uh, yeah, there's a bit. There's a bit of recycling. It's environmentally friendly to a degree, but I think if you write for uh, British, Australian, Israeli, Irish, Canadian, American uh, newspapers, you got to know something about your audience because uh, everything has to be slightly tweaked a little. You got to take out the obscure British reference and put in an obscure Canadian reference. Uh, take out the obscure Canadian one, put in an obscure American reference. There's uh, there's a moment in the course of the week when I uh, go through the column and uh, and 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 put different local jokes in, but uh, you've got to know something about each of your audiences, I think. How did you get into this business? Well, you know, I didn't go to journalism school and I didn't do media studies and I, I find it hard to uh, understand people who did, to be honest, because uh, ev everyone I knew when I started in journalism in Fleet Street, uh, they'd only gone into journalism because their life had gone horribly wrong. You know, they'd, uh, the, the, they had these sob stories, you know, their dad had left them uh, a copper mine in Zambia or something and then the, uh, the, go the government had nationalised it and they'd had 48 hours to get out of town with only three pounds in their pocket and, and they hitched a ride up to Nairobi and some guy said do you want to write something for the local paper and uh, everybody I knew in journalism was only doing it until their life took a turn for the better and they could get out of it and that's what happened to me I, I was short of money and I needed some in a hurry and uh, I started uh, doing journalism intending uh, to do it for a couple of months until uh, my life turned around and it never did so I'm stuck with it now. By and large and correct me if I'm wrong you have stayed off of American television why? Uh, well, <laughs> 
Well, Brian, I, I did I did a lot of TV when I was uh, young. Uh, when I was uh, in my late teenage years and early 20s, I did a lot of uh, TV and radio. There. It, was great, it was a great way of getting chicks, which was kind of important to me at that age. It, it, people knew you from TV and things. And I don't do a lot uh, these days because uh, I don't find it particularly rewarding. I, I'm doing this because uh, I love your show and I have a, a great uh, deal of respect for C-SPAN. But a lot of these things, uh, you know, just zipping into a studio to uh, uh, to be put up as the guy on one side of the argument who shouts at the guy on the other side of the argument for eight minutes, I don't find terribly rewarding. I, and, you know, it's great fun to watch sometimes, but it's not something I want to spend my time doing. Whoa, what happened to that guy? Here he is doing a daily TV show. Well, what happened is that newspapers died and radio and TV are headed the same way, but at a slightly different pace. So my business model was obliged to evolve. What I didn't realize was that unbeknownst to me, I was already on American TV. I'd fly into Cedar Rapids or wherever to give a speech. And although I had no idea, it would be broadcast on C-SPAN. So here I am, for example, at the Claremont Institute in California. 2005. I was speaking to a Frenchman at riots on TV, uh, and he was a, a friend of mine, very successful Parisian lawyer, and he said, oh, I think this is a lot of uh, nonsense, uh, these uh, showing the riots on TV every night. It's not a problem unless you don't... Uh, you don't have to see it unless you choose to drive through these uh, terrible areas where they're all rioting and burning. And me, I don't think about it. I'm, uh, I'm going for a weekend in the country. And, uh, and I said to him, the, the problem is you're not going to have a country to have a weekend in. That this is... <laughs> that the, these fellas, the, these, these fellas face uh, uh, an appalling situation that they're essentially uh, in denial about. So I, I, I apologize. I, uh, I speak to you as, uh, as a foreigner. Or uh, technically, I, I think in California, it's, uh, what do you call it, the, un the undocumented. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a documented undocumented, which, is, which, which probably is illegal. Uh, um, and I, I mean, I, one thing I love about the left is they invent the best euphemisms. I would love to have been at the brainstorming session that came up with the undocumented. I would, have, I would never have thought that would fly for a minute. I would have said, oh, come on, nobody's going to... The undocumented, nobody's going to fall for that one. Next thing you know, it's, uh, it's everywhere. It's an amazing thing. Uh, so I, I am not a proud, upstanding member of the undocumented American community, I am, which uh, I think is the largest single demographic in this country now. I love the word. It's like... Uh, since they introduced African-American, uh, uh, I don't know whether you saw Carol Lynn on CNN a couple of weeks ago during these French riots, uh, but uh, she was, uh, the, the, the guys were jumping around in the street burning cars and she was obviously, you know, you have to chit-chat over it while, because it gets pretty boring looking at flaming Peugeots all night long. And, uh, and, and uh, she, wa she wanted a word to describe the rioters, and she didn't like to say, uh, she didn't like to say Muslim, you know, and youths gets a bit boring, just going youths, youths. So eventually she described them as African-Americans. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I, heard, uh, I heard an ABC announcer years ago describe Nelson Mandela as the famous African-American, and she got... She caught herself halfway through, uh, the famous African-American uh, African, you know, at least with, 
Nelson Mandela is heavy, heavy on the heavy on the African, light on the American, and you know they're half right, half right. You couldn't even say that about calling these uh, these poor disaffected French Islamist rioters African American. It seemed grossly unfair to all parties. But it's like ever since ever since uh, ever since they invented African American, it's like they can't. It's difficult finding a word for black people who aren't who aren't African American. And I feel that way. Uh, as a foreigner, that ever since they invented uh, undocumented immigrants, it's kind of hard finding a term for the, you know, the three of us who aren't undocumented. Um, but anyway, I'm, so I'm proud to stand before you uh, as, a, uh, as a legal immigrant, uh, although uh, so was Mohammed Atta, of course. Uh, I... Uh, I, uh, I'm, having, I'm having some uh, construction work done at my home in New Hampshire, and I came downstairs a couple of months back to find the, uh, the carpenters and painters uh, all moaning about uh, illegal immigration. And they don't, they don't like that line you hear all the time about how America needs immigrants to come here to do the jobs that Americans won't do. And uh, they, they didn't like this line. They resented uh, legals annexing the construction industry, and they were generally bad-mouthing foreigners. And... Uh, you know, I came down and I said, look, he's up on the xenophobia, guys. The, the only fella writing any checks around here is the foreigner. And, uh, and my carpenter said to me, oh, yeah, right. He goes, in our case, we need immigrants to come here to hire Americans to do the jobs immigrants won't do. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be doing my part. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a newspaper columnist, and I must say I was tremendously heartened after uh, slogging through the Los Angeles Times from cover to cover this morning uh, to discover that apparently one of the jobs Americans won't do is uh, produce a lively, readable daily newspaper. And, uh, uh, so, uh... 2006. Give Peace a Chance is one of those songs I really never want to hear again. I was up in... <laughs> I was up in Quebec a few months ago and uh, a bunch of Quebecois pop stars, whom I love dearly, but if you're a Quebecois pop star, with the great exception of Celine Dion, nobody in the rest of North America has heard of you. <laughs> and, uh, and they were all singing their uh, Give Peace a Chance, a special anti-war version they'd recorded. And at the middle of them, one of these uh, highly accented Quebecois pop stars suddenly goes... Uh, in the middle, give peace a chance. Are you listening, Mr. Bush? And I think the answer to that is definitely no. Uh, but uh, good for them. <laughs> you know, we should all say what we think. Yeah, indeed. I want to read you a quote. You know, one of the things that a, a, an author who is just launching a book always hopes for is a, a news hook on which to hang the, the launch of a book. And, of course, the 300 million mark um, happened right around your book launch. And then here we have this, uh, a quote Western countries have problems, and since they have a negative population growth, they are worried and scared that if our population grows, we may dominate them. Who said it? I've no who it was. That, I, I'm uh, wondering, you know, I am wondering if you didn't pay this guy to help promote your book. It's Ahmadinejad this really? weekend who was urging Iranians to have more kids. I'm against saying yes. that two children aren't enough. It segues right into. One of the main points of your book. Yes, it's a con it's a conscious strategy. He's he's uh, joined the crowd because uh, I know that the Colonel Gaddafi and a few others have said this uh, over the years. The big shot imams uh, that basically uh, you can uh, 
participate if you breed fast enough and the people you're with breed slow enough uh, in one of the fastest population transformations ever seen. That's what's going on in Europe right now. And, you know, to be honest, I don't blame Jacques Chirac for figuring that in his situation the last thing he needs is to go to war alongside uh, George W. Bush. It's a huge demographic transformation. We've never seen one happening this fast. And so for people to wake up and see headlines now about a quote-unquote permanent intifada in France, it didn't just come from nowhere. No, no, and I was a very... Uh, uh, I was modestly encouraged by that. I, I think I first used the word about uh, what's going on in France, the Intifada, uh, about uh, four months after September 11th, uh, early 2002. And uh, everyone said, oh, that's ridiculous, uh, talking about this as a, a low-level Intifada in France and all the rest of it. Now the head of the French police union has said it. It's a permanent feature of French life, and it's getting nearer and near, nearer to the Elysee Palace and the Champs-Elysees and the Arc de Triomphe and all the kind of bits of tourist France every day. 112 cars a day yeah. burning there in France, yeah. and yet you have most of the local media there and the international media by extension whitewashing who's yeah. behind all of those cars burning. It's still, quote-unquote, unidentified youths behind yes, it. Yes, youths, youths. And in a sense, you know, they make the point. The point about youths is that they're youthful. And the significant feature of the Muslim population in France and most other European countries is that they're the young people. Not just France. You go to uh, Belgium, if you go to the Netherlands, the young people on the streets. You can tell a lot about a city, about who's on the street after uh, 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. And if you're on the streets of uh, Brussels uh, or uh, Rotterdam or Malmo in Sweden uh, after 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, you'd think they were Muslim sitters. 2007. To, to address multiculturalism more broadly, I mean, I find what I find fascinating is you take traditionalisms, uh, fascism, Nazism, communism. They are almost by definition isms designed to provoke an argument. Uh, some guy comes up and says, uh, I'm a fascist. And you say, oh yeah, well I'm a communist. They're designed to be oppositional. Uh, multiculturalism is the slipperiest ism because it, it, uh, it doesn't invite an argument. It says there's no point to having an argument. Uh, you know, it says basically if everything is of equal value, what the hell is the point of talking about any of it? And that is what makes it such an elusive enemy uh, to get a, a hold on. Now, almost every Western country has signed up to full-blown uh, multiculturalism. Uh, and I say just every Western country because the interesting thing about multiculturalism is it's a unicultural phenomenon. You can't, you can't be multicultural in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's, it's, it's impossible. Uh, and... And so if the purpose of your culture is to celebrate multiculture, uh, you're in effect saying that our bedrock belief is that we believe in everything, which is the same thing as saying we believe in, in nothing. Uh, you, you know, our core value is that we have no core values. And that is what they teach in, in schools these days. I think multiculturalism uh, is two things. It's a cult of ignorance. Uh, I, said, I said we were all, uh, except for this rebel colonist here, we were all children of the British Empire. And I'm, I'm old enough to have been taught by old teachers who taught, uh, who went back to the days uh, when there was a big map in the classroom and the bits in it that were colored red to mark the British Empire. It was, you know, that was the ultimate red state, not like the ones here. That was one serious red state. And, uh, 
and uh, these guys had and spent a couple of years out in obscure uh, islands teaching the natives about Shakespeare and the glories of Rome and all the rest of it. And they were very clear. They were tremendously multicultural in the sense that they knew tons and tons about other cultures. They knew phenomenal things about obscure tribes that nobody else was ever going to hear about. They could speak all kinds of obscure languages that nobody uh, is, is ever going to speak. Uh, and yet, the fact of the matter is, they knew all about these other cultures, but they knew which culture was objectively superior to that. Now you don't need to know anything about other cultures. The great thing about multiculturalism is it, it, it absolves you of knowing anything. You go to people who believe in multiculturalism and say, uh, well, uh, what are the, uh, what are the uh, principal exports of Nepal? They can't tell you. They can't tell you. You say, uh, what is the capital? I had this a couple of days after September 11th. I uh, went to Dartmouth College. I had to look something up in the library there. And outside the library, there's a demonstration saying, you know, um, uh, war is never the answer, one of these things. And these guys were standing around. Elites, people mortgage their houses to send their kids to this place. <laughs> they, uh, they go, uh, you know, they go, oh, this war's a terrible thing. They go, well, what you must remember, you've got to address the root causes. And I go, oh, yeah, what's that? And they go, well, uh, poverty breeds resentment, breeds desperation, desperation breeds hostility, hostility breeds terror. I said, oh, yeah, what's the capital of Saudi Arabia? <laughs> nobody, nobody knows anything. Multi... Multi multiculturalism is not about knowing anything about other cultures. It's just about feeling, uh, you know, warm and fluffy about them. And I'm sure Douglas, I'm sure every member on this panel has had this experience. You go on, you're giving some speech somewhere, you're on some uh, radio show, somebody calls in and uh, they, want, they say, well, I think you're being, I had this experience on NPR the other day, somebody called up and goes, well, I think you're being very hierarchical. I never even knew that was a pejorative word. Uh, <laughs> And this, uh, this guy, uh, I said, well, what, what, what do you mean? He said, well, you've just said most uh, Muslim countries aren't free. Uh, and I said, look, that is, that is a fact. I said, if you, take, uh, if you take, for example, countries that just have 20% of the population's Muslim, only three of them qualify as free, uh, Serbia and Montenegro, uh, Benin and Suriname, and it will be interesting to see whether France will prosper as a fourth member of that group. And, uh, and the guy goes, well, what do you mean there isn't free? Uh, they're, they're not free. And not, so then you start reeling off objective statistics uh, about literacy, about uh, GDP per capita, uh, about uh, women's rights, about, uh, about uh, votes and democracy. These are facts, facts, what we used to call before the multicultural age, <laughs> facts. So you reel off five facts and the guy goes, oh yeah, well that's just your opinion. I mean, uh, Robert Frost, Robert, you know, Robert, Robert Frost famously said of free verse that it was like playing uh, tennis with the net down. And, and, the, and, and the trouble with uh, having a discussion, trouble with, dis you can't, d discussing cultural relativism with cultural relativists is like playing tennis with some guy who says, your ace is just a social construct. Uh, As you know, America Alone was a big, bestseller. But it also attracted vexatious lawsuits from the Canadian Islamic Congress. Television people 
uh, Trixie, I was booked on the agenda on TV Ontario with Steve Pakin for the paperback release of America Alone. I then found out shortly before airtime that immediately after I'd be on, they were going to have the four sock puppets on, the young Muslim law students the Canadian Islamic Congress had found to front their lawsuits, uh, who would then proceed to trash me without me having any right of reply. They were the plaintiffs in the suit. In any civilized court system, as you probably know, the plaintiff goes first, then the defendant. But not on Steve Pakin's show. I was miffed. 2008. Here's the key question, though. The vast majority of people, I think it's fair to say, who move to the West, they westernize. Do you not think these Muslims will do the same? Well, I think that, again, I think that's, that's where we're getting into the discussion of whether I'm uh, racist and Islamophobic for, for, for talking about this. And, you know, that's, that's why, I, at this point, I'd much rather uh, you bring in your uh, other, other guest, Steve. I found out yesterday uh, that I was, I, I was booked on this show, and you'd also booked in these fellas who'd been running around town uh, calling me Islamophobic and racist for the last five or six months. And when I found out about it, we fired off an email to your producers and said, hey, great, we meet at last, let's have the debate that they've been asking for. These fellas, your other guests, refused to debate with me. You refused to sit... With me, I don't, know, I don't know why that is. I'm not scary. Uh, I don't eat Muslims for breakfast. Uh, I, I'm just one big, flabby, overweight Islamophobe, and they're uh, three fit young people. It shouldn't be threatening or menacing to them. But more to the point, when they refused the debate, I found that interesting, because in the Globe and Mail on December the 8th, they said, uh, the intention is to engage Mr. Stein about his views, to engage in civilized debate. December 20th, National Post. True to Canada's tradition of free speech, we decided to engage Mr. Stein in a debate. Uh, December 29th, Calgary Herald. Okay, we asked we an opportunity to debate. All the way to the BBC a couple of weeks ago. We want an opportunity to debate. Well, here's the opportunity. Why don't you come over, guys? Why can't we? They're sitting over there. I've never, I mean, with all due respect to you, Steve, I've been on TV shows in, uh, talking about my book in uh, Australia, Britain, Canada, the United States, New Zealand, Europe. I've never had a situation where Three people who've been protesting okay, well, for four months and they want to start a debate are sitting over there and won't debate. I, I understand. Apparently there were negotiations held between their people and your people no, before no, no, the program started. No, 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 I'm happy. Started. They can come over now. I mean, well, turn up uh, the lights. I'm happy to uh, debate. Uh, I got no problem with debate. I was on Al Jazeera a couple of weeks ago. I'll go anywhere. I'll talk okay, to anyone. Okay, let's try this. Let's, let's complete the time we have allotted for the first part of our discussion. Hmm. I'll go over there. I'll talk to them. Hmm. I'll ask them. And we'll see what happens. On the TVO replay, they chopped out the bit where Steve Pakin said the litigious Muslims couldn't come over and join me because there weren't enough chairs. And I yelled somewhat intemperately, it's not a chair issue. One of the great lines. And a bit later, I yelled at the sock puppets, do you want to come out to dinner? And Khurram Awan, uh, the head sock puppet, shouted back, no! I think the two delightful Muslimas felt differently, but then I always reckon I'm doing much better than I am in such matters. Mark Stein, honoured to be here. No supporting paperwork whatsoever, but I have been subject to at least three enhanced pat-downs already today. 
The guy at the airport uh, pulled me out of line to pat me down, and, and, you know, I wasn't really in the mood, and he said, uh, would it help if you closed your eyes and fantasized about other TSA agents? I'm so sick of, so sick of this pat-down business. The, uh, the TSA guy tells me to raise my arms above my head. He runs his hands down my back. I give an involuntary shudder, uh, so he spreads my legs and slips his hand under my inner thigh, moves around behind me, and then pats my bottom a dozen times. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Uh, wherever you are in the land of the free and the home of the grope, give me liberty or give me an enhanced pat-down. The Bipartisan Debt Commission has already factored in the $2 trillion reduction in Obamacare costs by allowing TSA agents to perform prostate examinations. If you're 17, if you're 17 and flying to Florida for spring break, you might not think you need a prostate exam, but the best prevention is early screening. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrorists have won. The government of the United States cannot get confessed jihadist murderer Ahmed Galani convicted on any of the 224 murders he was charged with uh, because they decided to shower young Ahmed with all the protections of the civilian justice system. But the very self-same government of the United States has decreed that your private parts and those of your children and your grandmother, that all 300 million sets of American genitalia are up for grabs without any probable cause. God forbid you use enhanced pat-down techniques on any Gitmo detainees. You'd never hear the end of it from Amnesty International, but you can use them on three-year-old girls and octogenarian nuns. Uh, Ahmed Gelani has been found guilty of one sole charge of conspiring to blow up the embassy buildings in Africa, but not guilty of murdering all the people inside them. How does, how, does that, how does that even work? What's the logic there? If I blow up the Empire State Building, I'll get convicted of vandalism and failure to apply for a demolition permit, but the thousands of corpses are just an unforeseen consequence. If it hadn't been for the peculiar nature of the uh, jury that decided you can apparently conspire to blow up a building without conspiring to kill all the people who happen to be inside it at the time you've decided to blow it up, if it weren't for the ludicrousness of that particular verdict, this guy would have walked. This is decadence. And pat-downs are the death of the republic. Uh, because, uh, because we only have pat-downs because we're not allowed to profile people like Ahmed Gailani. Profiling, you know, has become one of these words, these bad words. It's almost like racist now. Oh, you're profiling. Ooh, ooh. You know, profiling is what we used to call uh, good policing. That's what they do in all, the, in all the old cop shows. Every detective novel is about profiling. Uh, the Naked City. There are, there are eight million stories in The Naked City. This has been one of them. And now you're not allowed to narrow it down to, to find out which particular subsection of the eight million it might mean. You know, hmm. these men trying to blow up American airlines, they, they range from young Muslim men called Mohammed with an O and a double M who've studied in Pakistan to young Muslim men called Muhammad with a U and a single M who've studied in Yemen. So there's no obvious pattern here. No obvious pattern. We've got nothing to go on. There are no leads. So we'd better just pull in everybody. We'll, we'll pull in a southern redneck, a Belgian businessman, an Amish elder, an Inuit kindergartner, uh, three guys from the Elks Lodge in Pocatello and a, and a couple of lesbian newlyweds from Ma- Massachusetts. There are eight million... Eight million stories in the naked city, and we intend to hear all of them. No sense narrowing it down at all. The terrorists have won. There are eight million penises in the naked airport. Yours has been one of them. 2010.
But in some countries here in Denmark, for example, for example, and other countries, uh, you recently have seen that uh, Muslims are having fewer and fewer babies. And with these statistics in mind, uh, what does that do to your conclusions? Well, I don't think it does. I don't think it does anything because I think the demographic energy only has to exist for a couple of generations. I mean, for example, if you have 90% of the population who have uh, 1.3 or 1.4 children, which is the European average, and you have 10% who have 3.4 five, which is supposedly the European Muslim average, you only need two generations to catch up. In other words, the 90% and the 10% will have pretty much the same number of grandchildren. But beyond that... But if it goes down, actually, mm. then what will happen then? Well, I think at that point you will, you will be seeing, which we're already seeing in Brussels, already seeing in Rotterdam, already seeing in many, uh, many cities, you will be seeing them take on a semi-Muslim political character. So you don't just to understand you, you don't see, you, you don't think that the lower birth rates will change your predictions? No, I, I think in the end, uh, we're past, I think in most French cities, for example, we're past the point of no return. I think in significant uh, other parts, I think in Brussels, I think in Amsterdam, we're past the point of no return. So the question then is not whether these jurisdictions will be Muslim in character, but what kind of Muslim jurisdictions they'll be. On the other hand, some might say that the native Europeans, they're having too few babies, so why not be happy that someone would help us to get enough babies to to keep the, the welfare state sustainable and so on? Well, I don't, think, I don't think it works out like that, for example, because if you take uh, Turkish Muslims in Germany, generally speaking, they retire at, at, at an earlier age than ethnic Germans. 40% of French imams are on the dole. So in a sense, uh, they've got nothing to do but sit around all day uh, being subsidized mm. by, by the state. So that, that model doesn't work because immigrants understand very quickly uh, how, to, how to figure out the system. You've got, you, you go to almost any part of Europe uh, and the idea that, uh, that importing large numbers of immigrants will save you from your own demographic decline won't but, do it. But what you're saying here, that shows that there is a potential for changing these things. I mean, there is a potential making for, maybe for doing the integration better all over Europe. What would that change? Well, I think at a certain point it goes beyond assimilation, but I, I think it's, uh, yes, you, sh you should have certain integration and assimilation policies, but you have to have something to uh, assimilate to. And it's not clear to me, for example, that if you were a Turkish Muslim living in a German city, what, it, what is there to assimilate to? What is there about contemporary so German you don't believe nation? in integration? Well, I, no, that, that's, that's not the point. I'm, I'm saying you have to have something to integrate with. In other words, German culture or Danish culture or Dutch culture has mm. to be sufficiently confident mm. that immigrants want to be a part of it. If you go to an English school, English Muslims are told that uh, Britain was the font of imperialism, of racism, of colonialism, of everything bad in the world. And then they're surprised that British Muslims are turning up in Afghanistan fighting for the Taliban. Mm. Why would you love your own country if you're told it's the source of evil in the world? But all this, Mark Stein, raises the question, why isn't the, the, the European culture strong enough to defend this? Because I think... Uh, since the Second World War and even since the First World War, European elites have not believed in themselves or their own people. I think European elites drew the wrong conclusion at the end of the Second World War. When they said never again, mm. 
on on the on the German death camps. They didn't really mean never again. They drew the wrong conclusion. They thought it meant rejecting nationalism, rejecting national identity, rejecting your cultural inheritance. And there's a huge hole in the heart of where European identity ought to be. 2011. The administration has now clarified its position on Egypt. Uh, President Mubarak is not a dictator and he should stay in office, according to Vice President Biden, but he needs to step down immediately, according to Secretary Clinton, and remain president to ensure stability, according to Special Envoy Frank Wisner, and he should have resigned as president yesterday, according to Press Secretary Robert Gibbs, uh, paving the way to elections that must be held within three months, according to senior officials, unless he uh, waits till September, which is fine by us, according to the State Department. Got that? Uh, the official U.S. position is that Mubarak needs to go immediately, needs to stay indefinitely, needs to stay for a bit, then go, needs to stay for a bit longer, then go sooner rather than later, unless he decides to stay until September, uh, because he's standing in the way of the full bloom of a new Egyptian democracy, uh, unless it turns out that he's all that stands between us and a Muslim Brotherhood takeover, uh, because the Muslim Brotherhood are a radical theocratic tyranny in waiting, unless, of course, it turns out that they're reasonable moderate types we should have been talking to all along. So that's the official Obama position verbatim uh, from WhiteHouse.gov. If you're making that critical 3 a.m. call to the Oval Office and you get voicemail, press buttons one through six for whichever Obama position on Egypt uh, suits you best. 2012. Uh, look, let's have a change of pace. Let's have a song. And I know you've suggested Old Buttermilk Sky by Hoagie Carmichael. What does that do for you? Well, well, it's, it's, it's funny. You were, you were talking about uh, my, my childhood. It went, it went, I think any writer at some point, when a guy wants to be a writer, it's because at some point... Uh, he, he starts taking an interest in uh, language. And uh, the way I took an interest in language was I heard uh, pop songs and I heard phrases in them that uh, I didn't understand. And it made me think about words and what they meant. And I always liked this song. It's like a, a Western song from a movie. Uh, you mentioned Hoagy Carmichael. He wrote the music. Uh, a guy called Jack Brooks wrote the words. Uh, do you know Jack Brooks? No, I don't. His, his o really only other big hit was uh, When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore, which is complete opposite of this. But the title is lovely, uh, uh, Old Buttermilk Sky, which mm. uh, I, th I think if you're... Uh, if uh, you're an uh, old, uh, old Aussie uh, uh, sheep man from the late 19th century, you would call a mackerel sky. I think that's what I think that's probably what we call it down here. And it has a lovely phrase in it. I think hang a star above uh, a hitching post, hitch me to the one I love. And again, hitch, hitching yep. post is you know that little post outside the, mm. the old general store or the saloon that you tether your horse to when you go in for a beer at the end of the day. And it may, and so I always I, I never forgot first hearing this song and thinking about the uh, specificity of the imagery, which I, I still love to this day. Yeah, no, it's a great line, isn't it? Hang the moon above a hitching post. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, here's Old Buttermilk Sky by Hoagy Carmichael. Old Buttermilk Sky I'm keeping my eye peeled on you What's a good word tonight? 
Are you gonna be mellow tonight? Oh, buttermilk sky Can't you see my little donkey and me? We're as happy as a Christmas tree Heading for the one I love I'm gonna pop her the question That question Do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy If I can only bank on you Oh, buttermilk sky I'm telling you why, now you know Keep it in mind tonight Keep brushing those clouds from sight Oh, buttermilk sky Don't you feel me when I'm needing you most Hang a moon above her hitching post Hitch me to the one I love 2013 It's now time for one more thing Dana, you're kicking us Hugh Hewitt, uh, who is a wonderful guy You've got to follow him on Twitter Last night he had a great suggestion He said that Mark Stein Radio host, author, thinker, writer, uh, should run for the U.S. Senate in New Hampshire. Mark Stein replied, um, well, basically, he did not shut the door on it. He said, Mark Mentum is the idea. And then Hugh Hewitt actually has a website. So if you think that Mark Stein should put his hat in the ring for U.S. Senate, you can go to He's where is He's not an American. He's Canadian, isn't he? You can run for Senate, Bob. It's not an American? <laughs> yeah, I believe so. If you're a resident. Of no. course. Yes. I really? All right, we get, we, anyway, so I'm right, for Mark Stein. All right. Great guy, though, by the way. Yep. 2014. My guest today is my friend of great many years and fellow columnist of the National Review and elsewhere, Mark Stein, a, uh, a legendary figure with an immense following all over the English-speaking world and, indeed, parts of the French-speaking world, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Mark. No. I was I was uh, I was sitting at the Tim Hortons on the township's auto route in Magog, Quebec, and my sole francophone francophone fan from Sherbrooke, Quebec, came up and buttonholed me in Tim Hortons. So you were correct to say that I'm a legend in the French-speaking world. Exactly, too. and and they know you, but they don't remember who Tim Horton was, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even though he was a formidable right. performer yeah. in the old Montreal Forum. Right. Uh, Mark, you're now in the midst of uh, some litigation, uh, and it, let, let me see if I have this correct. You have exposed the fact that Mr. Mann, one of the great propagators of, uh, of the dangers of global warming, uh, not only was mistaken with his infamous hockey stick of how suddenly the temperature of the world had shot upwards, uh, but also that Nobel laureate man did not in fact win the Nobel Prize. He was a complete imposter. Uh, uh, but can you just, because it, it, if it doesn't come from you, I'm afraid our viewers won't believe quite the absurdity of this latest manifestation of the workings of the American justice system. What's actually gone on here? Yes, I'm being uh, sued in the District of Columbia Superior Court. Mm. And it's, as you said, it's over the uh, Michael Mann, who's a climatologist, who is the man behind the famous uh, hockey stick graph that mm -hmm. uh, the government of Canada, I believe, distributed to every man, woman and child in the country mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, basically showing uh, the thousand years before the beginning of the 20th century is the flat stick of a hockey stick. And then uh, the 20th century is this uh, blade of the hockey stick shooting up out 
of the ceiling of the graph around about 1999 yes. uh, and, and plainly looking as if we're all going to be broiling by about 2014, which, mm-hmm. we're, which we're not. And this was used by the IPCC uh, to gin up the whole, to basically, to, I would say, to change uh, the level of debate about uh, climate change and the environment. Into one of outright hysteria. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sky is falling stuff. Yep. And... Uh, and he's now suing suing me. Uh, he, he claimed in the state in in the complaint to uh, accuse me of the crime of defamation of a Nobel Prize winner uh, <laughs> because he, it's he's not a Nobel laureate. <laughs> as, he no more uh, won the Nobel Prize than we did. No, uh, well, if, uh, he he won the Nobel Prize in the same sense that I, I did. He, he he has an association with an organization that won the Nobel Prize, which is the IPCC in 2007. He once wrote a, a report for the IPCC, and they were co-awarded. They won half a Nobel Prize with Al Gore in 2007. In the same way, I'm a Nobel laureate because my mother is Belgian, and uh, in 2012, the European Union was awarded the Nobel yes, Peace and Prize. and I am a UK citizen, so I feel that I... I'm a Nobel laureate also. That's that's true. This is the first time, I think, on your show we've had a Nobel to Nobel conversation. It, it's it's as if uh, the inventor of insulin met with Lester Pearson or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Dr. Banting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. that's right. Banting meets Pearson. <laughs> that's the level at which the show is operating. Yeah. 2015. My next guest has been criticized, even taken to court, for what he has written and said about radical Islam. Mark Stein is a writer, an activist, and author of the undocumented Mark Stein. Don't say you weren't warned. Mark, thank you for being here tonight, and I know you knew uh, some of the men who worked at this publication. Your thoughts on what we have seen in Paris today? Yes, they they were very brave. Um, This was the only... Uh, publication that was willing to publish the Mohammed, the Danish Mohammed cartoons in 2006 because they decided to stand by those Danish cartoonists. I'm proud to have written for the only Canadian magazine to publish those Mohammed cartoons. And it's because the New York Times didn't, and Le Monde in Paris didn't, and the London Times didn't, uh, and all the other great newspapers of the world didn't, only Charlie Hebdo and my magazine in Canada and a few others did. Uh, that they were forced to bear a burden that should have been more widely dispersed. I mean, I see all these teary candlelit vigils and everyone claiming suddenly to be for freedom of speech. I think one consequence of this is that a lot of people will retreat even further into self-censorship. The New York Daily News won't even show... Uh, it dishonors the dead in Paris by not even showing uh, properly the cartoons. They pixelated Mohammed out of it, so it looks like Mohammed has entered the witness protection program, uh, but they left the hook-nosed Jew in, and that exactly gets to the double standard here. You can say anything you like about Christianity, you can say anything you like about Judaism, uh, but these guys, uh, everyone understands the message, that if you say something about Islam, these guys will kill you, and we will be ret- treating into a lot more self-censorship if, uh, if, if, if the, the pansified Western media doesn't man up and decide to disperse the risk. So they can't just kill one little small French satirical magazine. They've got to kill all of us. 
the decision not to republish the, these images that mocked the Prophet Muhammad initially may have been done because they found those offensive. Many in the Muslim community find them very offensive, same as they wouldn't republish images, some publications, mocking Jesus Christ, mocking other uh, religious figures. It's, has it morphed now to a place where it's, it's, it's not just about respect for religion, it, it's about fear. I mean, that newspapers, news, news organizations yes, have I, fear. I think your point of view is valid, Megan, if you're the cartoon editor of The New Yorker, and that, those fellas in Denmark send you the cartoons, and you think, well, these are in poor taste, not particularly funny, not particularly well-drawn. Uh, but the fact that The New York Times and The LA Times and The Boston Globe and The Chicago Tribune and The Toronto Globe and Mail and The Irish Times and The Sunday Star Times in New Zealand didn't publish them after people have been killed for them, uh, that's, and they're actually a news story now. They're not a cartoon. They're not, it's not an artistic judgment. It's not an aesthetic judgment. But the fact they won't even show you them after people have been killed for them uh, shows that we're actually retreating. Uh, the, 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 the media, uh, which congratulates itself on its bravery, uh, is one of the most tedious uh, institutions for handing out awards for its bravery, far more than uh, firemen or soldiers do. The fact that they didn't even have the courage to show these cartoons after they became mm -hmm. a news story is why uh, these brave men at Charlie Hebdo uh, had to bear the burden almost single-handed. And Margaret. see what the New York Daily News did is absolutely uh, disgraceful, I think, and dishonors the dead. You've studied a lot about radical Islam. It, it just, it, we, we get a report every week of another lone wolf terrorist attack. These guys reportedly trained in Syria. Mm. One of them already had a terror conviction under his belt. I mean, the what what should the west be doing what are we doing or not doing that we need to to stop this well we need to be honest uh john kerry today uh said that this was a uh, a, a battle between civilization and pregnant pause uh, the forces that are opposed to civilization. Well, perhaps he'd like to be a bit more specific uh, because, because these men all have something in common and John Kerry isn't prepared to address it. And President Obama, the, the leader of the so-called free world, quite disgracefully stood up before the world at the United Nations and said the future shall not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. For a start, under, uh, under American law and the laws of all civilized societies, you can't slander a bloke who died in the seventh century. But secondly, uh, the, the head of the country with the First Amendment shouldn't be standing up at the United Nations and indicating that he's willing to trade off freedom of speech. That, that was a disgraceful performance. You know, he said, the future shall not belong to the, the, uh, those who slander the prophet of Islam. He talked the talk. Uh, these, these savage, murdering fanatics in Paris today walked the walk. So, so words matter. And as long as the president and John Kerry and David Cameron and all these other people are dishonest and evasive about the source of the threat, we will continue to lose brave men like we did in Paris today. Mm. Mark Stein, thank you for being here. 2016. I wanted to say one thing about the, the kind of symbolism of this. As I said, it's 49 gay nightclubbers killed by a Muslim. And there is something, whatever you feel about gay nightclubs or whatever, there's something kind of uh, poignant about that. I, I, I spoke on the uh, 
10th anniversary of the Mohammed cartoons in the Danish parliament about nine months ago uh, with a couple of other people. And it was a heavily guarded event, a very heavily guarded event. We were protected by the PET, which is the Danish Intelligence and Security Service. They're very nice ceremonial uniforms, and they weren't all wearing them because they had to blend in with all the crazies trying to get us. And the United States State Department and the British Foreign Office uh, put out alerts saying it was dangerous for American and British nationals to be anywhere near my event. So <laughs> if you see that I'm coming to your town... Give it a wide berth, because according to the U.S. State Department, it's dangerous to come anywhere near me. And afterwards, we were all supposed to go out for dinner to be some big... We'd, we'd given the speeches it was in the Danish Parliament. It was a big triumph. And we were supposed to go out and have dinner in some swank restaurant, as is often the way after these things. And the Danish intelligence service was going to accompany us to the event, and they would be posted at the doors to make sure people didn't get into the restaurant and kill us. And, of course, when the restaurant got wind of this, they decided that their other fancy diners wouldn't, uh, wouldn't like having to have dinner with a bunch of people who required the Danish security service to protect them. So they cancelled the reservation. So as a result, we wound up just kind of wandering the streets, uh, this knot of people surrounded by Danish security uh, agents, and eventually wound up in some rather sort of seedy Copenhagen bar that was uh, full of just like regular clubbing Danes, pub-going Danes, except for the fact that there was us and these Danish intelligence operatives there. And it was full of these uh, hot Nordic blondes, and they have a, a, like a little tradition there. If you say, a magnum of champagne, they don't open, they don't pop the cork. The blonde girl takes the sword out of, sword out of the scabbard and slices the top off the bottle, slices through the glass, so the glass top of the bottle goes flying over the other side of the room and takes some guy's eye out, and then the champagne is all flowing everywhere. And uh, it's nice at the end. I enjoyed it, to be honest, more than I would have enjoyed being at the swanky restaurant with all the dull, stiff, elite members of Copenhagen society because I had all this hot blonde totty uh, waving swords around and slicing the tops off magnums of champagne. So I had a, I had a pretty good time. And Douglas Murray, who uh, writes for The Spectator in Britain and has spoken out on this subject as often as I have on Islam and free speech and all the rest of it, he, he said uh, afterwards, the whole event was a bit like a party at the end of the world. And I've thought about that phrase a lot since then. We were the only ones. People gave us a sort of funny look when we went into this bar because like, we were a bit overdressed and obviously we had a security detail and they couldn't quite figure out why we were there or what we were doing there. And you have the idea that this, this problem that is the world is grappling with that most people, 15 years after 9-11, most people in the Western world still have no idea what it is. And that phrase that Douglas Murray used to me, a party at the end of the world, that's kind of what it felt, what, what it felt like at the idea of being trapped in that gay nightclub in Orlando for three hours between two and five when that guy was holding the joint down and the police hadn't bust in on him. And he shoots, he shoots one in three of the people in there, um, either killed or wounded, uh, a nightclub 
everyone's dancing. As far as I can tell from the dead, they're mostly Latino names. It was a Latino dance event of some kind. They're dancing away, and they're cut down. They're gunned down. They're dead as they dance. And if you read these texts, they're, they're almost unbearably painful to read. These, the, there's a series of texts somebody's making, last texts to their mother as the guy is coming for them. And to think about that, it's a Saturday night. It's a Saturday night. And you lead a hedonistic Florida lifestyle. You don't give a thought to all this boring stuff, this depressing, boring stuff. Somewhere up the end of the dial, there are these boring news channels where there are people talking about this boring stuff all day long, every day, and you don't care about it. Because life is great. You're in southern Florida. It's a great climate. Uh, it's a fabulous town. You can party all night, and it's an all-night party. And you go to the party at the end of the world, and you are gunned down. Even in a party at the end of the world, there is room for a new star. Just six years ago, Jordan Peterson was virtually unknown outside a Toronto academe, but I thought him worth having on the Mark Stein show, which prompted Mark Levin to complain that this was foreign content of no interest to an American audience. He didn't reprise the complaint a year or two later when his own guests, uh, talented young American conservatives, uh, cited Jordan Peterson as a great influence and one of the new stars of the right. 2017. The New York Post headline, uh, Caitlyn Jenner still has her penis. Her penis was not something that tabloid headline writers had to worry about until a few years ago. The lady who wrote the vagina monologues, big feminist hero, for 20 years she had a great run. Yeah. Now uh, that play is not being produced at uh, American campuses because they say it's ghastly, it's uh, hateful for her to imply uh, that you have to have a vagina to be a woman. Yep. So she's transified her play and put a scene in there about a trans woman who still has, quote, her penis mm -hmm. in there. And you put it in civilizational terms. Yeah, and well, I'd, I'd, like, I'd, I'd just like to put it to you as basically as possible. I mean, is the jig up for us? Is this how it ends? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that this, this transgressive behavior that you're describing is part of the all-out assault on Western categories of thought. And I think that that was started not even so much by the Marxists as by the French intellectuals of the late 1960s, especially Jacques Derrida, who maybe is the most dangerous person of the last 40 years. And he's, of course, the hero of the humanities and much of the social sciences. Right. And he believes that, and states this in his work, that the whole purpose of categorization is for exclusion. And so the, that... And categorization is the basis of cognition. Yeah. And so he basically has made the claim that thought itself is an agent of oppression. Right. And that, that's absurd, except that he's the dominant thinker. Yeah. And, and I don't think people, I know people don't understand how radical and transgressive the universities actually are and how deeply embedded mm -hmm. this sort of thinking is in them. And this gender issue is a screen as far as I'm concerned. And it's a screen for, which is why it's got so much attention. It's a screen for an all-out assault, and that assault started back in the late 60s. It, it started when the Marxists transformed themselves into postmodernists, roughly speaking, when, when they realized that their 
working-class utopia, when they finally realized after decades of denial that their working-class utopias in the Soviet Union, for example, were absolutely murderous and reprehensible empires, they transferred their, their thinking to identity politics and carried on their merry way. 2018. So you have at Davos right now the leaders of the world's largest democracies, the economic leaders, the political leaders. How many of them do you think personally believe in democracy for real? I don't think they do. And I think that's what's fascinating about this. They regard things like the Trump election and Brexit as and the rise of, say, Marine Le Pen in France and uh, the AFD in Germany. They regard these things as aberrations and as proof that democracy has to be moderated by all the sensible, clever people getting together in a Swiss uh, ski resort, kind of like uh, the uh, Blofeld uh, doing the Spectre round table in, uh, at the top of the, the mountain, mountain in the... Yeah, in the Bond film On Her Majesty's Secret Service, if you're keeping in touch with your world conspiracies. They all meet on the top of a mountain like the Spectre board meeting in James Bond films, and they decide the measures they can take to ameliorate and moderate the voice of the people, because the voice but, but, of the people is vulgar and keeps voting for Trump and Brexit and that kind of thing. But don't you think if you're going to have a global conspiracy of elites, at least the people involved should be impressive and self-aware? Smart. Yes, I, I think so. And I think it's become a rather sort of third rate uh, pseudo celebrity event. As you say, uh, the, the, this idea that they're, they're all the people with private jets, it's a kind of class thing. Uh, so there's a lot of layabout Saudi princes who fly in there. Uh, there's a lot of rather trashy celebrities. Uh, there's a lot of powerful <laughs> business leaders. But at heart, it is an anti-democratic bias. You mentioned that hamburgers cause global warming. That was this story today. I did didn't actually believe that. But it turns out that if you eat a breakfast sandwich from McDonald's, every time you eat a sausage and egg McMuffin, a polar bear loses its ice flow. Apparently, the sandwiches are responsible for global warming. So as bad as it is, Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore flying around to these summits on their private jets, if they all flew into Davos on a sausage and egg McMuffin, the entire planet would be kaput, because that's apparently what causes <laughs> global warming, according to these guys. Okay, next year. January, you and I are going. Let's do a show from there. That would be so fun. Yeah. 2019. Just quickly give us your thoughts on what James was talking about with the uh, so-called impeachment of Donald Trump. Is this more nonsense or is there something serious in this? Well, the guys uh, uh, who are driving it do have a serious thing that they wish to accomplish. They're launching, if you can follow this... This CIA whistleblower and the Democrats are launching this investigation to stop Trump's investigation into the phony Russia investigation. So, so, so it, it takes a new investigation to stop the current investigation into the old investigation. That's the way things work. That's the way things work in Washington. So in, in actual fact... Uh, even the impeachment is centrally located in Alexander Downer's cocktail olive <laughs> in, uh, in the Kensington wine rooms. <laughs> March 27th, 2020. <laughs> From my house arrest to yours. 
It's your Politburo Pandemic Palooza. Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky China men from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up. They were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish, and everybody says delish. Chairman Z will book your flight. You'll be in Italy tonight, and everybody starts kung flu dying. Those jackums can't stop lying. Fake test kits they're supplying. The whole world they're Shanghai. There was funky Dr. Ted Trust from the funky WHO. He said, she is the big boss. I gotta blow. He made his bow and then he said, hey folks, there ain't no human spread. So go hug a China man when you're out strolling in Milan. So everybody is unflu spreading. It's at your sister's wedding. Prince Charles is bedding And Isis next beheading You're under house arrest Doc Fauci says it's best That you don't leave the nest He'll keep you all abreast when they stop Kung Flu fighting. Achoo, 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 achoo. This is what people are seriously proposing now, the new normal. I'll tell you two things I don't like about it that just sort of uh, creep me out a bit about it. That somehow all the solutions, like, for example, no live music, you know, the last time I was writing about societies banning music, it was ISIS and the Taliban. So I'm creeped out by the fact that we're basically adopting ISIS-Taliban policies on music. You can't, there's no music in Afghanistan. They don't like it. Whatever you're into, you can't play the Celine Dion Christmas album in, the ta- in, in, in Taliban-run Afghanistan. They'll decapitate you for it. Uh, they, they actually beheaded a bunch of musicians. I think it was on the Libyan coast, uh, ISIS did, when they caught them with their cellos. Why are we adopting ISIS policies on music? That's basically what's happened. And then again, we get to the mask. The face covering, again, that is a sign of Talibanic societies, ISIS societies. It's not quite the full kneecap like they, like they wear in Raqqa when it was run by the new caliphate, but it's actually getting pretty close there. It destroys social trust. This idea, I, I've never liked burqas and kneecaps and all the rest of it because I don't want to be walking through a city surrounded by masked people. I think it lowers social trust. And now we're adopting it. So the funny thing is, what's weird to me is that uh, these two things, the mask, which is also, I think, a symbol of one of the other appalling features of the last few months, the restraints on free speech, where restraint, the fact that we're covering our mouths itself seems to have some disturbing uh, aspects to it. 
but it's basically like a sort of Sharia light thing. Uh, no music and you have to wear masks. These are not, if this is the new normal, screw it. I don't want to live like this. The Mark Stein Club presents Tales for Our Time. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. At one end of it, a coloured poster too large for indoor display had been tacked to the wall. It depicted simply an enormous face more than a metre wide, the face of a man of about 45 with a heavy black moustache and ruggedly handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying the lift, even at the best of times it was seldom working, and at present the electric current was cut off during daylight hours. It was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up, and Winston, who was 39 and had a varicose ulcer above his right ankle, went slowly, resting several times on the way. On each landing, opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eyes follow you about when you move. Big Brother is watching you, the caption beneath it ran. Inside the flat, a fruity voice was reading out a list of figures, which had something to do with the production of pig iron. The voice came from an oblong metal plaque like a dulled mirror which formed part of the surface of the right-hand wall. Winston turned a switch, and the voice sank somewhat, though the words were still distinguishable. The instrument... The telescreen, it was called, could be dimmed, but there was no way of shutting it off completely. He moved over to the window. A smallish, frail figure, the meagerness of his body merely emphasised by the blue overalls, which were the uniform of the party. His hair was very fair, his face naturally sanguine, his skin roughened by coarse soap and blunt razor blades, and the cold of the winter that had just ended. Outside, even through the shut window pane, the world looked cold. 2022. You told us the last time he was on about how he dined uh, at the palace with the royal family after uh, Prince Philip saw an, uh, a piece that he had written and wanted to have him over to discuss. He's an old friend from the Kelly file as well, Mark Stein is a ho- the host of The Mark Stein Show on GB News in Britain. So great to have you back, Mark. It's uh, lovely to be back with you, Megan, even on a uh, very sad day uh, for those of us who have never lived under any other monarch, which is yeah. most people in the British Commonwealth these days. So let's start there. Um, what is it 
about Queen Elizabeth's passing that has led to this level of news coverage and outpouring of support. To me, this feels very different from the passing of any normal leader, a former president, especially somebody who's 96. This is this one feels very different. I think it is. Uh, She became queen when Harry Truman was in the White House. Now, that is ancient history uh, to most Americans. It's a whatever it is, a third of the entire history of the United States. But the Queen has been there through Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and all the others and has been a constant uh, presence. Uh, My country, the Dominion of Canada, is 155 years old. And she was queen for 70 of those years, which is virtually uh, half the entire history of the country. And I think at a time when we live in a super hyper present tense culture, as we do these days, that it's uh, useful and comforting to have something that isn't up to the minute and that doesn't change and that just endures decade after decade. And it's a tr- even at 96, it's a tremendous shock when she's there one minute. Uh, her last official act was she, she sent a message to the people of Saskatchewan on Wednesday after a terrible mass murder in that province in Canada. That was the day before she died. She's 96 and she's working until the day before she dies. And even on camera, as recently as Tuesday, mm. you know, she passed on a Thursday with incoming Prime Minister, uh, now Prime Minister Liz Truss. That was amazing. I mean, think about it. If you're that ill mm. uh, and, and there was news about her hands looking bruised and, and darker mm. on the back of her hands, so clearly she'd been undergoing something, to, to bring yourself, just to get dressed in that kind of a state, never mind, go before the cameras, pose for the photo op. I mean, to the end, she sacrificed self in the name of public service. Yes, and she'd been trying to will her failing body into being strong enough to fly back down to London and uh, be there to swear in the new members of the Privy Council. And her doctors, you know, put their foot down and said, you can't do it. But that's the thing. That's what she'd been doing. Um, I was going to say since 1947, when she gave her famous speech from Cape Town in South Africa, uh, pledging her life uh, to the service of uh, her, the, the peoples of uh, our great imperial family, she put it. But in fact, she'd been doing it since before then. I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, a, a friend of mine's mother, who's a, a little old lady in her 90s, and she uh, remembers b- being invited to tea with the Queen uh, when Princess Elizabeth was a little, I think it was a seven-year-old girl, and they'd arranged a sort of photo op for her with other seven-year-old girls from around the empire, and, and my friend's mum got to go to that. I mean, that is, the world is completely, so that's, that would be like 90 years ago. Everything about the world has been utterly transformed since then, but she's still there.
The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.